Welcome to the Good Bottle Podcast. Join Chris and Drew, two self-proclaimed booze pundits with a lifetime of industry experience as they walk you through the alcohol business and how today's headlines affect the industry. Each week, the guys will be joined by a special guest that will help them break down these stories and offer their own expertise to the podcast. So, pour yourself a glass of your favorite drink and sit back. This is the Good Bottle Podcast. Yeah, it is. What's up, everybody? My name is Chris Sinclair. Welcome to the Good Bottle Podcast. I am joined by my fellow host, Mr. Drew Garrison. Drew, homie, what's cracking, baby? Oh, uh, not too much. Just enjoying the long, the long Labor Day weekend, which, uh, which in the past, it's it's been somewhat of a sketch situation to record on a Monday night after after a long vacation weekend. Like Agreed. at one point. Um, you know, our former guest, Sam, he was supposed to be on and he got drunk and passed out at an A's game instead. So he wasn't able to make it. So we didn't know if our guest would make it tonight. Fortunately, she did. And uh, but there was moments today where I spent a lot of time in the sun and I was like, oh, no, I need to I need to wake up a little bit. Maybe I have Jen I did the same. I had a, I had a, actually I mentioned that I was going to make myself an espresso because we've got a espresso machine here. Uh, and so I made myself an espresso and Jen looked at me and she said, you think Drew needs one? I did. <laughs> I said, and I, I did said, need yeah, one. I do. And she goes, well, tough. Oh, uh, I've, I've fallen out of favor with Jen. Shit. I need to, I need to, uh, make some changes. Um, but you know, and speaking of falling out of favor, we just want to, we want to let everybody know, like last week we listened to the episode and there was this weird clicking noise that like started after, um, chad's very sultry commercial and um we don't know what that was from and that's just going to go into another another lesson learned um in terms of in terms of this podcast so if you were able to grit your teeth and and get through it we do appreciate it because that was a lot of really fun content with travis um but we do apologize for the for that clicking and it was infuriating And, and like i said just another thing so um Hopefully that won't happen this time. I don't anticipate it happening. We uh, we're back in the remote situation because uh, there is a little bit of editing that happens on behalf of our Zencaster partners, which which we do appreciate. But uh, let's stop playing games and and all that fun stuff and apologizing and get into the good content and our guest this week. Um, she is from Sacred Thirst Selections, and she doesn't have a whole lot of confidence when it comes to spirits, but I just don't believe her. So <laughs> I think she's gonna I think she's gonna surprise us, but she wants to talk wine, she wants like some other fun stuff and some cooking. I think we've never talked cooking on this show, so we're definitely gonna do that as well. Um, our guest today is Eilis Peplau. Eilis, did I get did I nail everything? Did I pronounce it all correctly? You correct absolutely yet? did. Yes. Thank you for having me on the pod. Of course. And and you're also you are a you are an avid listener as well. I sure am. It's my commuter listen. <laughs> So now you're now you're seeing how the meat is getting made. What kind of feelings do you have so far that you you saw like the prep before the recording started? So disappointed. <laughs> yeah, that holds up. I'm just kidding. It's, uh, <laughs> I think it's um I I'm I will wait to tell you guys if I prefer listening or being being on podcast being a part of it. <laughs> okay, so um so what are you what are you sipping on? What what was because because you you've listened to a lot of a lot of episodes like you know what people bring to the table so what did you bring to the table? 
I opened up something that we just went out of stock on. So it was my treat. It was Perfect. under Corbin. So I was like, well, I'm opening this tonight. We had some burgers for dinner. So this is... So um, the, oh, you're here. <laughs> it's like a holiday weekend thing. Hey, America. <laughs> so I'm drinking... Um, some taken from granite. It's a series from the Renaissance Vineyard, um, and we work with Closerone. And Gideon has gotten us some of these wines. He made them in these years, uh, and this is the 1995 Cuvée Soleil, 100% Cab, um, all granite soils and very natural in terms of winemaking. So it's one of the few California cabs that I quite enjoy. Well, I know that's that's heresy to say, but <laughs> well, I mean, I think that I think immediately everybody kind of knows what the classic California cab is, and and I'm definitely looking forward to our new friendship because I'm so gun shy when it comes to California wines now because people like Chris have ruined me. Um, so, what sets this California cab apart from what, like, maybe what? what the listeners might be considering is your classic California cab style. Um, I mean, I think the, the number one thing is that it's coming from a cool climate. Um, it's coming from the Sierra foothills. So you get elevation, you get different soil type. And um, it's not a grape. That's not, it's not a, a style that's really very extracted, which you can find. And I'm, I know I'm going to say some really broad strokes things. Um, so probably get a lot of listeners saying, no, 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 you're wrong. But um, Napa is warmer, generally speaking. And generally speaking, you get a lot more oak usage, a lot of newer barrels and just more extraction, heavy handed um, with great potential still, but it takes a lot of time. And so this is also, I mean, one of the reasons I like this is it's had that much time because from 1995. So when you're talking extraction, you're talking about just barrel influence on the fermented grape itself, not anything or this, or is there something else? Cause you know, again, I think sometimes what, what ends up happening on this, on the show is like we get a little too um, industry speaky and mm -hmm. sometimes we do need to break it down a little bit further and be like, Hey, this is what that means. This is what that means. And so if you hear it in this context, so for extraction in this scenario, what, what is like you really referring to? There's a lot of levels of that. And when, when I, when I'm, using that as a tasting note, what I take away from it is it's very tannic. It's got a lot of, and that's, that adds that roughness. Um, definitely you can extract flavor from new barrels. You get a lot more toast and um, vanilla coconutty notes on there. Um, really, when I try to define it, it's, it comes across as a very vague term, but it really is the more you are, um, kind of stomping on the grapes, getting that, like squeezing out all of the harsher tannins, the pips, the having more of that um, contact with the skins to get just more color, more juice out of it. That's how I, that's what I would describe as an extracted wine, which is good in many contexts. And sometimes it can be overdone as with anything in winemaking, it can be overdone. Right. Right. Um, and I think so this one is totally in balance. And so you said this one's from the Sierra Foothills. So where in the Sierra Foothills? Because now you're talking like our country. Yes, yeah, so this is coming from Renaissance Vineyard, which you know okay. has 
a bit of a uh, uh, cult background, and I won't get into that. Um, I'm sorry. No, you're not allowed to say something <laughs> like that and then be like, "Sorry, guys, I have to move on." Can you give us like a? Can you give us Renaissance? It's crazy. I have I have some friends who uh, about like two years ago heard about it and took a drive up there to uh, go wine tasting and they weren't, they didn't take any pictures because I, I don't think they were allowed to. Uh, and they've just told me stories and stories about what the grounds of this place looks like. So I have not yet been, so I can't speak to the specifics there. Um, one day I will go. Um, but yeah, it is. It is very much like that where they don't really like you to take a lot of photos. They don't want, I mean, it's not like they're, um, well, I mean, not having visited, I don't want to speak out of turn about it, <laughs> but um, there's definitely this cachet about them and secrecy. Um, and I think it just uh, kind of extends to that, um, how your friend didn't take a lot of pictures, didn't find out a lot about them. Yeah. But so, everything, all of the winemaking is done by hand. Um, so it uh, leads itself to the natural winemaking scene if we're going into that. So it's not like religious cult. It's more like this is reached cult-like status because it's so popular, but it's also niche. Or was there it an was. actually religious? Oh, it perfect. Was. perfect. Yeah. This, is get, this is getting better and better. Never mind. <laughs> it, it, was yeah. a, it was a cult, you're saying. Yeah, yes. it was a doomsday cult. Mm-hmm. Did they plant the grapes? They yep. they did. Everything was everything was cultivated. Everything was done by hand. I I feel like I feel like there's a there's a joke in here somewhere where it's like <laughs> there's supposed to be there's like a natural next progression for what we're supposed to say right now, and I and I literally don't. I have nothing. I'm just kind of like, I mean, I guess maybe like at what point does does the cult get out of it? I mean, was it after they drank all the Kool-Aid? I mean, I don't know. Um, uh, a like lot of how... people, a lot of people have left, but then a lot of people are, are they've just like, they spent their fortunes and that's just like the, the world that they live in now. And so that's like, that's where they own their property. That's where they exist. And the, the cult is essentially dead at this point in time, but everybody who is part of the cult still exists on that land. Not everyone, but a lot of the people who were part of the cult who are still there. A lot of what people was have the, left. What was the name of the cult? Because I feel like I need to go Wikipedia this right after, like right after we're done talking. Do you guys I don't know? know? Honestly, I don't, know. I don't remember what it okay. is. <laughs> Renaissance Vineyard cult. Yeah, Drew not there's a lot. I mean, tonight. there's a lot of people that have written about it. So um, just do some googling. I just like how there's 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 this group of winemakers who at who at one point were like, yeah, we all came up here because we believed in some thing, and now we don't at all, but we make dope wine. So well, here you that's go. That's what happened with Gideon is he made wine there, and then he left, and he said, no, that's not for me anymore. He per- he was still able to work with them to buy some grapes, um, but he's kind of he's doing his whole entirely his own thing right now getting is a very cult like name like that's like someone's yeah. like it's like it's like hey that remember you know that guy gideon he used to be in a cult i'm like yeah well his name is gideon so <laughs> no but he i mean he is a not i mean fascinating but also just kind generous like 
and very thoughtful person. If you ever get the get the chance to meet him, well, he's, very probably, he's probably very in influential. I'll tell you that. I mean, without Absolutely. knowing him, I bet he's a very influential person. Um, okay, well, I'm going to keep going down this rabbit hole if if we don't <laughs> if we don't jump off of it now because that's just where my brain's going to go on this. Um, Chris, what are you drinking? I am drinking uh, some Chocolina Rosé. Uh, if you know me, you know my uh, like cult-like passion for all things Basque. Uh, and yeah, that's right. I tied it right back in there. You're welcome, Drew. I know nobody else can see your face, but I can, and I'm going to comment on it. Uh, <laughs> this is a uh, uh, beautiful Chocolina, Basque country, as old Chocolina is. Um, and extremely sour, extremely just like raw, grassy, mineral, um, lightly effervescent, insanely delicious. And uh, I have not had very many Chocolina Rosés. And uh, I brought this one home because I figured it would go really well today with uh, with the burgers and the heat and everything like that. And I was right. And I decided that I was going to save a glass of it for myself for this evening while we were on the podcast. So you're welcome for me uh, demonstrating a little bit of self-control. It's pretty rare. It's very much so appreciated. Um, so I know in the, in the past you've talked about, you know, kind of being transported back to Basque when you, when you drink the different, you know, wines and, and different spirits that you've had from there. Do you, do you feel like you're duplicating that or is it more, is it more just a good pairing for burgers? I would say it's a little bit of both. Uh, it's well, uh, a, cause I hadn't had Rose Chuckleina when, uh, I was in Spain. Um, but this is such a, such a quintessential flavor profile that it's hard to not reminisce and not like, you know, recollect what, what experiences I had while I was there. Um, but then it's it's also if I don't want to think too hard about it and I'm eating a damn delicious cheeseburger that my wife put on the grill and it works for that too. And so it was a pretty good day, pretty good wine for today. It was, it was all right. Would you say that there's like, you know, tremendously different from, let's say like the California Rosés that maybe people are used to drinking and, and stuff like that or, you know, getting it from the specific region? Like, why should somebody uh, yeah, go without out a doubt. and... And be like, like, hey, this is a rosé, but it's different because of X, Y, and Z. Like, what are like, what's really going to set it apart to be like, this is why you need to go buy this right now? Well, I would say specifically if we're looking at like California rosés, California rosés tend to be um, a lot more uh, juicy, jammy, um, have a little bit more like lusciousness to them. Uh, this is more of like chuckling already is so insanely bright and acidic it's totally one end of the spectrum and people who like it love it because and this is not the great really too much right. else that's like it yeah that's it's this style of wine yeah, yeah. um right. and so for it to be a rosé it's just like kind of like dialing that down maybe like two notches so we go from 11 to 9 maybe uh this is this is I, you know, I, it's just a little bit softer, a little bit more floral versus, I don't know, like, uh, like a strawberry, you know, 
you know, having a reminiscence of like strawberry and, and raspberries and, uh, like red fruit and cream or red fruit and like sugar, whatnot from and California. Is, is the one you're drinking a little spritzy too? It is. It's like it, a little, that's a signature I mean, for chocolate. Yeah. It, Cause it's just like that youthful deliciousness and they pour the chocolate the same way they do their cider too. Right. Like it's, they, they like draw it out from with the, the tip of the tip of the bottle inside the glass all the way up to being like three feet apart, four feet apart. So it expresses that, like that, that fizz that's in there and it dies down and builds up the effervescence or builds up like the, um, the nose in the glass. It's great. So yeah, you get a little bit of that, like, oh, what would you call it? Like a little bit of that foam on top. Yeah. It's not really a head that. on it, but it's like, just like a, like a soda fizz a right on top. So Chris, you're telling me that when, you know, uh, bartenders and people pour wine like that, where they stretch it out and they do the three foot pour, like there's actual, there's actual reason for it. Not just being fancy. That's what, that's what we're telling the, the listeners today. I would say that there's, that there is a history to it. I would not dare claim that uh, bartenders aren't just completely full of themselves and just doing something that they saw one time. I mean, also it looks pretty badass. It does look really fucking cool. And, uh, and but, so, but you're talking, Drew, what you're talking about is, is it, it stems from that, but it's, it's still a totally different thing. Like the long pour when, when you're talking about like bartending, um, when you're talking about like spirits, you're talking like from, uh, from one tin into another tin, or if you're talking about like um, uh, a blue blazer, uh, which is the that like old 1800s like drink that's lit on fire and rolled between two metal goblets, like that's those are totally historically um, like relevant methods of mixing drinks. Uh, I I think though that just 95 percent of bartenders don't know what the fuck that is. That checks out. Um, so, Ilyas, let me let me ask you. So, you you know you're familiar with the wine that that Chris is talking about, and then obviously you know you have you know quite quite a bit of interest in it, and that makes up some of your portfolio. But like, so what is? Oh, uh, we lost Drew. Just lost the sound. Yeah, we can just you me, lost. Can you hear me now? Ah, uh, we got I'm you. Back oh, now. There We're you back. are. Okay, so I might have hit the wrong button. But, um, <laughs> but, but I was, what I was, what I was saying was, you know, you, you have some, you have some knowledge on, on the wine that, that Chris is drinking. What is some of your background and, um, what's been your experience just with wine and, and kind of how you got to the point now where you're drinking cult wine, uh, on the reg? <laughs> uh, oh boy. So I do love to tell my non-wine friends that how I, got my first job in wine because everyone, you know, everyone asks. And I say, well, winejobs.com. What, that's a thing? Yes. <laughs> so for people in the industry, a lot of people know what that is. It's um, it's like Indeed, but specifically for the wine business. So you'll find things from all over uh, sales to production to whatnot. Um so I started with a small importer and distributor based out of Washington, D.C. called um, Finish 59. And I say I, it was the best start I could have had. A lot of, similar to the book I have now, small producers, uh, vignerons who are farming and making the wines themselves, mostly French, some Italian, and then they've expanded since then. 
And so I, I knew absolutely nothing about wine. I was just like, I like it. We'll see if we can do this. Um, it was the only job that didn't say I needed to have education or experience. And uh, I speak French and spoke a bit, speak a bit of Italian. So they said, okay. Um, so learned through uh, the winemakers um, visiting and when they came to visit as well and just talking on the phone. Because part of my job was, you know, get there and first thing in the morning, call up Europe and check in with the winemakers, see if our orders are ready and stuff like that. So that's where I got a lot of um, import kind of a background there and just the logistics of like building a container and getting an order picked up and label approvals and all of the kind of not so glorious things that have go into making, getting wine here. Um, I was with them for a little while, came out here with them to their warehouse. And then I um, flipped onto the sales side um, with the territory in San Francisco with Chambers, Chambers and Chambers, uh, family-owned uh, distributor that's prevalent in California and Hawaii. And then I hopped over to a tiny little producer, uh, sorry, uh, importer, distributor, and I ran Northern California for them. And then I came all the way full circle back to Sacred Thirst, still doing sales. Um, and kind of the, the nice part about Sacred Thirst is all of the guys there were working at Vintage 59 before I even started there. So it feels very, uh, feels like it's come full circle and I've enjoyed it so far. And then along the way, I've done some education stuff. Um, I've uh, finished the WSET diploma and little bits and pieces here and there as well. Nice. I think that's awesome because like it's it's definitely the question you get more often than not, at least on our side of it, is like like it's like, man, your job sounds awesome. How do I get into it? Just kind of like there is just a million different ways to get into it, and to kind of come in it at that level is is super super interesting. Um, with with Sacred Thirst now, do you do you still have any of those responsibilities, or do you ever like you know give a little two cents on like, hey guys, this is how you stack a sea bin you know, or <laughs> no, well, I mean, I do, I do some ad- administrative stuff with, uh, with sacred thirst as well. Um, but not, you know, because it's only a small portion of what I do. Um, it's nice that I don't have to be on the phone with Europe at seven in the morning. <laughs> right. Right. Um, but yeah, it's nice. To, it's also nice to have a foot in there and just, it makes a big difference. Um, you know, I'm not sure how much, you know, being a, doing sales, but it makes a huge difference to know why is the container taking this long? What is the, you know, what's not just like the general answers of, well, there's a shortage. And right now there is a huge shortage of containers and at the port where so things aren't getting unloaded fast enough. And so there's all those logistics, which people are kind of talking about now, mm-hmm. but there's a lot more of like, well, you got to wait for this. And then, oh, well, such and so is so tiny. They need to, we had one producer um, that they couldn't bottle until it was nice out because they didn't have enough space in their cellar and they just took all of their equipment out into the square, did their thing, and then they had to pack it back in. So had to wait for the weather to be right. So there's all those little things that it really makes a difference, um, I think, having been on both sides. Well, that's also like a little bit more of a charming answer, right? 
not just the not just like yeah people are lazy and they can't unload these ships fast enough it's just kind of like oh no they're just looking for they're waiting for a pretty day you know and you're kind of like like oh nice like this is why i buy this stuff because they only bottle on pretty days so it's uh, all part of the story right oh i mean trust me i absolutely absolutely subscribe to that to that mindset um awesome well, good. I just wanted to make sure that we gave a little bit more context. I know we kind of we kind of glazed over that, and I got distracted by the cult talk, where I just was like, <laughs> I had to get completely out of it, so I can be like, oh yeah. By the way, we should also tell you're going to go down that rabbit hole as soon as we finish. I up. totally am. I just didn't <laughs> want to do it on the podcast, and and then also rob people of you know knowing your credentials and and things like that. So um, I'm glad that I was able to center myself again and get off of get off of the cult talk. So. We're good. We're good there now. Um, and then I'll just, I'll wrap it up for terms of what we're drinking. I have the new Chiranda Añejo uh, rum, which I'm very, very excited about. So from Urapan. For, yeah, the, the Urapan You got you to at least say the brand, man. Come on. I'm going to get to it. I'm going to get to it. I, I love how I didn't interrupt you during your Basque wine spiel, but that's fine. Um, you knew what this was. Yeah, I did. So, so you know, Taranda is in the the Rappen is is a very very important brand to me. I absolutely absolutely love everybody that's involved with it, and it's a really really cool you know cane distillate project out of Michoacan, and um, and out of the the town of Urapin. And uh, I got to visit there like three years ago, three or four years ago, and um, while we were there and we're touring you know, their distillery and, you know, getting to know everybody and stuff like that, just having like the greatest day of my life. Um, we went into their barrel room and I just was like, I had no idea that you guys actually had aged Chiranda. And, you know, again, Chiranda is, like I said, a, a cane distillate. And the one that, that we have from them is a 50-50 blend of molasses and cane. And um, and the they had a bunch of it that was sitting in barrel. And I was like, well, why don't, why don't we have the aged product yet? And when talking with the owner, she was like, well, you know, we want to do it. We just haven't had any ordered from, you know, from the importer. And it's just, we're still trying to figure out the logistics and how we really want to do it and when it's going to be ready and da da this and da da that. And then finally, um, a few weeks back, they, they let me, or a couple months back, they sent me a couple samples of what do you think about this ABV and at this ABV, uh, Chris, you got to try them, which was super fun. And then, um, and then it finally arrived on our doorstep last week, and I immediately sold it all out, which I was very excited about. Um, I didn't even get a sample bottle. I just sold it all because I just had hyped it up so much, and we, we didn't order enough of it, to be honest. But um, we do have more on the way. But it's 18 months in bourbon barrels, and it's just – it's so much fun. And it has it's damn like, delicious. It has this like really – unique creaminess to it that is no doubt in part due to the fact that it's a little bit molasses on top of the cane distillate, but it's just so different. And, you know, at this, at this point, that's just what I'm always going to want. I'm always going to want something weird. I'm always going to want something different. And, um, and this one just delivered and, uh, I've already, of course I've, I put it through the daiquiri test and it's freaking delicious. Um, so I'm just, I'm very excited about, about this product right now. And so hopefully, hopefully we'll get more in the country and we'll, we'll be barreling it up and then maybe do some single cask in the near future. Cause I think this thing even at a higher ABV would be even more expressive. So, 
Uh, so I'm very, very excited about this pour, and it's just it's very simple, and it's also just because it's it because it's the Urapin brand, it's super affordable too. So, and it's very, a beautiful package. Yeah, so you know they like they went really, with really like cool. they they went with the blue and the orange. Um, you know, it's like kind of like they're, they're, they're the the only thing that sucks is that it's not the blue bottle. Like the full blue, uh, sure, but it's because it's it's an aged spirit, and it would look correct. weird against that blue. It would it would look weird. So like you had yeah. to do the clear bottle. So that's like the only thing you're kind of like, well, I mean, I guess if you had to make some sacrifices, that was that was the one to make. But the colors really pop when the when the bottle is full. The problem is like you're gonna have a really hard time keeping that bottle full. You know, you're just gonna be like just taking it taking it right to the face. Um, so again, I'm very, very excited for it. We got it at a couple spots throughout, throughout Sacramento and then throughout the rest of the state. And I'm hoping, and I don't know what it's, what it's looking like across the rest of the United States, but hopefully more and more people pick it up. Like, like the, the Urop in Toronto has completely blown up this year, uh, just across the entire United States. It's like the, the secret's finally out and they are just churning through um through product and people are you know they're they're having a hard time keeping up which is a great problem to have because you know again one of my favorite things about that distillery and the people behind it is that they contribute so much back to their community and like you know their old distillery is now their music school that's free to kids so you know so hopefully they'll be able to continue to do projects like that and um continue to grow it and it's uh you, you can always tell when when a project in in mexico is going really well because you know more and, and actually this is this is anywhere but more and more family members are showing up wanting to get involved so um that's when you know a project's going going mm -hmm. really well so <laughs> i'm excited for Miriam and, and the rest of the team and yeah go out and try it if uh if you haven't had it try the try the the unaged one too because it's freaking delicious it's amazing yeah it is okay well i think it's time for our opinion on facts that we've heard from reputable sources. All right. So last year was insane. And due to that insanity, off-premise numbers, so your liquor stores, chain stores, like, you know, your grocery stores and different, different outlets had outrageous numbers of sales to the point where for the entirety of this year, the numbers are actually a little bit down for the off-premise. Uh, not significantly, only a little bit, you know, a little bit less than two percent, but still, um, you know, in sales, you're always you're always measuring yourself against the previous year. So those numbers were going to be tough to hit, but they are because they were they were so inflated. However, there's stuff that is remaining strong, and it is our favorite brand or favorite type of new booze that's in the world, and it's going to be ready-to-drink cocktails. And hard seltzers are still on the rise, despite aluminum shortages, just brand fatigue. It's still going nuts right now. And there's expectation that this is only going to continue to grow throughout the rest of the year due to the fact they're going to have lots of reorders, holidays, and then also a lot more wine-based options, which, Hylas, I think this makes you a great person to bring in because you have this exceptional portfolio full of all these small family wines that are made out in the town square. What's the status of your newest, you know, canned wine? Is that a thing for you guys? Have you looked into it? Um, with all this growth, is that something that you think you guys would ever explore? I gotta say, we are asked about it a lot. Um, 
And it's not something that we're doing at this point. Um, and we are for a few reasons. Um, and now I, you know, I can't speak to the higher ups, but you know, this is my analysis of it. We work with a lot of uh, European producers and it's much harder to get that set up for like a bottling line into cans versus bottles. Like it's not tradition. It's not a traditional format for Europe. So there's a lot of logistical stuff involved. And then, you know, I, me personally, I'm looking, I don't personally, I would love to have some cans available mm-hmm. uh, to, for in our portfolio. But at the same time, I also really don't want to have to deal with it because people expect a can to be cheap. Right. And the yep. producers we're working with, like, you know what? Cheap wine means not as great grapes generally. It starts with the farming. And yeah. so part of me is like, it would be nice to have to offer, but I don't really want to have to even go there. I think it's 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 tempting, right? Because I feel the same way. Recently we we were looking at a potential portfolio and I got to like the second page of their deck and I saw RTDs and I just was like, yes, say yes, say yes. I guess just say yes. Like that this is, I, I will take it. These things are, these things are layups right now. You know, like every account is looking for them. And so there's definitely that temptation, right? Just to kind of be like, like, like who cares? Like, yeah, let's make some money. Let's do this. I'm so I'm kind of going to compare this a little bit to the keg wine scenario. Because Kegwins, I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think they're on the downturn. There are fewer accounts that are even setting up or care to be set up for Kegwines. And in terms of the landscape, um, the people who started making wine in kegs were the smaller farmers who had said like, hey, I have, I want to source, you know, this restaurant really likes my wine. I want to source to them. They're set up for a keg. It's easy for them. Great. I will make that happen. You know, it's funny about, uh, sorry to cut you off. What's funny about uh, keg wines is that's an area that we've moved into as an off-prem um, store. So I buy keg wines for a couple uh, couple customers right now. And then, and then we want to try to get people to set up uh, kegging situations in their home for wine. Um, so what's interesting is what I saw in terms of the trend is that um, those early people who got into kegs, uh, winemakers, a lot of them backed off because it wasn't worth it because there were larger producers swooping in and doing the things that you want on keg for a bar. It's Sauvignon Blanc, it's Pinot Noir, it's something, some easy rosé. And they're swooping in and making those kegs and they're selling it for cheaper. Yeah. And they're like, well, it's a keg of wine. People don't aren't asking for something that's really well you know they're, they're looking for something that's more easy less something you really want to sit and think about so it's interesting you say that because i'm kind of from my perspective i see it going in the opposite direction i think i think As for me, consumers are less interested well I, you well, know I, I operate within a bubble right you know and so so our clientele and who we talk to is a very uh very specific demographic of people you know so well, when it comes to cans it's kind of the same thing. Um, I mean, I th- personally, the first canned wine I tasted was the Alloy Rosé. And I was very skeptical. I was like, uh, I can't, I don't know. You know what? I was like, 
pleasantly surprised. I was like, that is pretty darn good. Um, so I'm not averse to wines and cans, um, but it's it's definitely trendy right now, and the quality becomes questionable if you don't know the producer, you don't know, you know what what you're buying in particular. I mean, that's always going to be the case, no matter what, right? It's just it just it tends to look maybe a little more sketch because then you can just crumple that can and throw it in the recycling right after, which is a, which is a weird move. Like I know for myself, I still haven't fully embraced the RTD world or the wine in a can or the seltzers because I have such a mental block with them that I immediately get headaches when I drink them. Something about just, I, I just feel like I'm drinking metal, you know, like that metallic, profile is just it's like i'm like i'm like nope this doesn't work for me and i immediately get a headache i can't do them at all have Um, you poured have you poured them into a glass over ice or no because i think if you're going to do if you're going to do the thing it's like do it as as like what was the the intention there was like like oh you i'm supposed to drink this out of a can so then i do and i'm like i don't enjoy this at all i think that's a i think that's a you issue not a them issue of course it's a i mean i'm not i'm not i mean obviously i'm wrong i mean the numbers back up how successful these things are like if they were basing their decisions off of me they'd be losing massive amounts of money there's like i'm not the target like i am i'm the outlier say i'm the outlier i do you know like if i i won't say no to especially a cocktail in a can Cause I'm like, I don't want to mix this myself or I'm on the go or I want to sip this on the beach. Definitely down for cans in certain scenarios, hiking, picnicking, beach time. Definitely. Yeah. So let me ask you this kind of going back to the, to the caked wine thing. I feel like one of the issues that I would find myself running into just simply as a consumer was even though restaurants or wine bars were set up for kegged wine and they could run them on their lines, they didn't necessarily store everything at what I would consider like the right temperatures. You know, like I remember going into a place in the, in, you know, in the winter and being like, Oh, I just, I just need a little quick pop, whatever your house red is. Um, pour me that and they were like just so you know it's on a keg so it's going to come out a little colder than 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 you're probably what you're expecting especially on a day like this and i just like i was like well how cold could it really be that's totally fine like yes just give me that it was a terrible experience like when i got it i was like i was like this is freezing wine like this is not good at all and it was like raining outside so the whole mood was ruined but do you think that 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 might be contributed to so much like if Chris is if Chris if you're selling to like individuals like they probably have their system pretty dialed in because they're not worried about everything being com- maybe completely up to like health codes and stuff like that or it's kind of like, like yeah we can have this one sitting out and it run this way or we can you know regulate it that way I don't know like what was what was your what was your experience with with that I mean what do you guys think could that be a contributing reason to maybe why it's falling out of favor just because temperature regulation maybe on the reds I don't know. I am really sorry you had that experience. <laughs> um, but I don't think that, I think that's an anomaly in okay. terms of the system setup. But you're right. 
like either it could be too warm or it could be too cold. And that's all depending on how the space is set up at the bar. Um, generally though, I do encourage people to drink their reds colder than you think, but not freezing, not yeah, white temperature, I, I, I mean, and, but cooler. Yeah. And I've, and I've come to, I've come to that same, um, realization as well like i i definitely want a little bit of chill on it i just was like i was like this thing was i'm like sitting there in this restaurant like cupping the glass being like please warm up please you know and um and you can see like it really fucked me up this happened years ago and i think about it often you know um so chris i'll tell you who it was after after this you can know who it was but but yeah, one one of the first one of the first bars I ever experienced um, kegged wine. It was like their whole program, um, and it was in Oakland in Jack London Square. It was called Chop Bar, and they were they were literally the first first place in in East Bay, if not, and I think the second in the in the Bay Area as a whole, like or you know you know Peninsula and East Bay. Nobody counts the North Bay um, to uh, to have to have wine on draft, uh, and the reason they were the second, I think, is because their other property that was exciting. Is that a motorcycle outside your window? Oh, we're living in Oakland now. Yay! yay. <laughs> <laughs> um, Got a taste of it. <laughs> the, uh, there, uh, they had another property. The owners of that restaurant had another property in San Francisco, and that that was actually the first one in I think the whole Bay Area that had it. Anyway, Chop Bar was like a whole system they had set up entirely for uh, for uh, wine on draft, um, and they did it more from like an ecological perspective. That was what they were looking for: was less waste, less uh, uh, less waste in terms of like the glass, but then also um, not having to spend money on their waste as much uh, as a company because they're not throwing away or recycling as much. Uh, so for them, it made a whole thing, a whole, you know, a, a lot of sense. Uh, interesting enough. And I didn't know this at the time, but that was, uh, we have drew and I have a mutual friend, uh, Mr. Eric Ginther. Uh, and that was the first time that I had met Eric. Uh, we've, tr- we've traced our, our roots all the way back uh, to that, point in time when chop bar first opened and Eric Ginther was working there at that point in time. And I I'd been in there multiple times. Um, so that's kind of a fun little piece of, uh, personal history. We'll bring Eric on. So you guys can understand how more relevant that talking point was. Cause he's a great person. He is a great person. <laughs> uh, uh, he, uh, and a, a whole lot of, a whole lot of knowledge, uh, in this industry. Yes, Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay, so um, so this stuff's on the rise. Chris, do you see it slowing down at all? I mean, you're 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 on the front lines. You're selling canned cocktails and other expressions to the masses. Do you are those numbers ticking up? Yeah, or they I are. Looking your store. No, they're 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 um, growing. Definitely growing. We're uh, um, it's. You know, I mentioned before that we operate within a very uh, different bubble than I think a lot of people, and that's because we have standards. Uh, so Ooh, a lot of the shots, things that shots fired, if you will, uh, a lot of the uh, <laughs> the the shit that ends up on shelves across uh, many many different you know uh, grocery store shelves and Costco shelves and or just liquor store shelves, uh, you know, 
people are just fine to just carry it and just see how it does and, and rebuy it for us. We taste everyone and we like, we sit there and we contemplate it. And since everyone at good bottle has, uh, has bar restaurant experience, um, are sort of very, very, very low bar and yet seemingly difficult one to surpass is, is this drink good enough that like I could have made it and I'd be happy to sell it to a guest if it like came out of my shaker tins. Uh, and oftentimes that answer is no. Um, so, so for us at good bottle, I think that we're like starting to develop a, a consumer base that understands that finally. Um, and it's, it's been interesting to watch, you know, we started very, very, uh, slowly, but we've got, I mean, we've got a full shelf full of, uh, canned cocktails and, uh, and a couple canned wines now. It does seem to get bigger every time I'm in there. Yeah. Like, you know, what crushes it for us is, is, is our canned wine from, um, uh, field recordings, the Foxy, uh, that took a long time for that one to catch on. And I was, I was like beating that drum for a while. And now it's like, I can't even, I can't keep it in stock, man. That stuff just flies so fast. It's got such a cult following. Um, people lose their damn minds about it. And it's a mind fuck of a, of a wine too. It's a, it's a rosé that's been uh, infused with grapefruit and dry hops. It's, it's a weird one, but it is fucking fire. It's really, really good. But that's film that, recordings, man. They just they do weird stuff, and it's it tends to work out. They did make yeah, a, they did they they attempted to make a foxy uh, that was similar to a uh, adios motherfucker um, with like blue curacao, and it was vile. And they all knew it was vile. It was fine. That one did not sell. No one liked that. Uh, uh, so thankfully, that's gone. <laughs> we didn't buy that one. Alright, do you have any final thoughts on the the world as we trend more towards cans? Oh, I have many final thoughts. That's the problem. <laughs> no, I mean I understand the direction and especially with the pandemic, like, you know, people considering the fact that they've been drinking a lot heavily drinking for, for the last year and a half, that oh, maybe single serving can of wine is much more reasonable, even if it's drinking at home or, or picnic or whatnot. Um, so I, I can understand the trend, but then there's part of me that's just, I'm sad because, you know, a lot of small producers just don't have the means to bottle into can instead of a 750, which is a traditional. And sometimes, you know, don't you want to share around or, or sometimes there's just never enough. Yeah. That's definitely that. You brought up an interesting point. I didn't consider that. Like, I really wish that there was more drinkable stuff in smaller format bottles, and and I get it. It's just it's just it's a logistical nightmare for any producer, you know. So um, I guess I could see that's where a lot of the popularity is coming. Where it's like, yeah, well, let's throw it in a can. Maybe that's easier to do than like a three seven five or something like that in glassware. So. All right, I you guess know, we'll have to go know, to a good bottle and buy some freaking canned wine. I'm so sorry, Drew. I'd be too. You're always welcome. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, in this in this uh, same article um, uh, that we're referring to, this is a, a, a Nielsen report, 
that that we're all sort of looking at and referring to. So the RTDs that that we've been talking about um, are up, at, you know, fourteen percent and eight, you know, about eighteen percent. Um, non-alcoholic category is up thirty-five percent across beer, wine, and spirits, which is pretty incredible, um, and and not at all actually surprising. I've I've seen that same trend um, at the store as well. well. The one that really caught me off guard um, that is up and still up and I feel uh, lightweight attacked and offended by is that moonshine sales are, are up 12.2 fucking percent. What is happening? Why are people moonshine are, sales are, up? People are trash. That's it. People are trash. What moonshine is selling so much? I don't know. And from where? I bet it. I bet it correlates with the South and COVID numbers. I bet that's all. You know, that's where it's all being sold. You okay? So you are you suggesting that it's like <laughs> actual moonshine, or it's like just shit that's called moonshine that's selling in the grocery store? I bet it's just shit that's called moonshine. I bet it's not actual moonshine. I mean, I, I can I share uh, an amazing moonshine story? I wish you would. Yes, you can. Okay. Guest of honor. <laughs> So, um, this is pre-wine days for Eyeless. Um, you know, I had some friends from the South and um, very, very sweet family. And they're talking about, you know, all these stories they had, like the apple pie moonshine that tasted like apple pie. Mm-hmm. Like, legit, you could get smashed on it because you it's like drinking pie. And so out of curiosity, I was like, okay, well, I went to the store, found like one of those things that said moonshine, apple pie, and it was garbage. <laughs> Utter garbage. Tried a couple of things. I was like, yeah, this is not for me. It was like sweet and like also very hard. It was just not, not good. And then um, I drove across the country from DC out here to Oakland and our very first night we were, we went from DC and down North Carolina and we stayed at their, at their house. We were going to camp out. She's like, no, 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 go to the trailer. We hang out. We have a great dinner, hang out with the family. It's lovely. And then she's like, well, I'm going to go get the trailer set up for you. Come out when you're ready. And, um, we we go out. We're like, okay, cool. It's time for bed, I guess. And then she has lined up in a row. At, I think it was about a dozen different shot glasses of all of the different flavors of moonshine. And I tasted them all and they were fucking delicious. <laughs> but, you know, she said, yeah, I, I told, I told Bub, her husband, I told Bub to go like, stop, you know, call in some stuff with friends. And so, she drives up in her car and they were like, hell no, you ain't coming in here. And then they saw who she was. She picked up her jug or mason jar, had them all in the freezer for us. It was, it was an amazing experience and amazing tasting. It can definitely be amazing stuff. There's, there's no doubt about it. I mean, I went to school in Montana and I had some incredible moonshines up there, but for sure, anything that's in a grocery store is obviously not moonshine. And it's going to be that sugar laden, just nonsense garbage that, or just white whiskey, which is fucking trash, which is also really rough. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't ever understand, um, people's desire to like, to taste, you know, 
the those distillates and stuff like that like i have a there's a guy that's in our in our company that is always wanting to try that stuff i'm like why why he'd be like yep pretty gross you should put that in a barrel like i just don't get it i just don't i don't get it you know anytime i've had any kind of like younger like I had a, I had a single malt whiskey at like three weeks in a barrel. And I just was like, I was like, this is terrible. This is terrible stuff. Thank God that someone was like, so let this hang out for a lot longer. What does it taste like? Um, oh. so it's, so it's, so it's always a little bit different. It, oddly enough, the, the last one that I had, it actually reminded me of a Maximiliana agave, which is a type of ricea that gets made in Jalisco where it's, it's one that I just can't stand. Um, and it's almost, you know, it, t- to me, it's kind of like a mealy rot taste. And that's what like this, this white whiskey ends up tasting like, like you can tell that, you know, there's definitely some like, like, you know, some grade in there, but it's just, it just, even though it went through a distillation method, like it somehow maintained that rot quality to it. And I just don't understand it. Why, why it tastes like it and why people think it's appealing, but um, that's how it's always tasted to me. And that's kind of been like that common thread amongst all of them. But then I, but then again, like I found it, I found that same note in a Maximiliana agave, which is so weird. Cause it's like, they have, they obviously could not be more opposite in terms of production and, and base material but uh, but overall it's just kind of like a like if if water could rot this is what it tastes like yeah <laughs> to yeah. me to me it, it's like if you take cheerios and uh soak them in vodka for for a few minutes and then drink that vodka uh that's with that's a cheerios. good explanation as well it's a little yeah. bit more complimentary but but that's where like, it like is <laughs> that mealy taste, you know, yeah. where you can just kind of tell that there's like a, it's just, you're like, you're like, is there something in this? They're like, Oh no, it's just, it's just liquid. Like, are you sure? Like, are you giving me the same stuff? Like, you know, cause I feel like there's something in here, you know, it's just, it's, it's bizarre. I mean, you, if you get the opportunity, yeah, absolutely have to try it. However, I just don't understand people who are like continuing to go to that. Well, and be like, I need to try it again. Yeah, like no, no. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think, uh, from like an educational standpoint, it's important to have that experience. If that's like, if you want to be a booze nerd, like understanding the base distillate is great. It doesn't mean that you have to enjoy it, and it certainly doesn't mean that you need to buy that shit from the grocery store. Which is <laughs> yeah. again why I'm very <laughs> confused that this number is up so high. Like real, I, real moonshine. Like I've got, like I've got a dope bottle of moonshine on my shelf here at the house. Uh, that is a, a lotus flower uh, uh, moonshine, and it's fire. It's so good. It's one of those that's like just sitting up there that I, I, I look at it fondly, and I don't want to drink it because I don't know when I'll ever get it again. I'll come over and drink it. For that's you. fair. Yeah, that's good. Friendship. Friendship. <laughs> Friendship. Uh. all right so now on to our next story this was actually a a memo that was set out um via the team at libdib libdib is a third-party distributor 
that prides itself on giving small, tiny brands the opportunity to be to have distribution um, throughout different states throughout the United States. And what they do is they basically go through all the licensing and um, all the different paperwork that you need to do in order to become a distributor. And then they allow different brands to come in and be like, hey, yeah, that's our distributor. And then they set up third-party delivery systems and, and things like that for them. They don't have a sales team. They barely have an accounting team. They just exist. However, <laughs> they just... They've got an IT they team. Just, they have an Allegedly. They have a website. So they have to have that. But they do. They just entered an agreement with RNDC. And RNDC is the second biggest distributor in the United States. And basically what they're going to be using them for is to improve... Um, improve like shipping and delivering systems for them. So they'll no longer be going to another party. Like they'll actually be working with people who work with booze every single day. And what their hope is, is that this will just give people more options in terms of, you know, having availability for like for their booze. So the RNDC sales teams will not be selling any of the LibDib products or things that are not underneath their umbrella. However, they will still be on the same trucks and things like that hopefully making them easier for smaller brands to get out into the market, which has always been LibDib's kind of, um, you know, goal is just to offer, you know, for these people who can't get on with the Southerns or the JVSs or the sacred, sacred selections, all these different people that we say no to them, they're like, we'll go to LibDib. So, um, so Chris, you've, you've worked with LibDib. What do you think this is going to be some, will this be a good thing for them? Will this be a bad thing for them? What are your thoughts? I don't know, man. I, it's like, I, honestly, I was really confused. I, I would say more than anything, because uh, you have, I mean, this fits into sort of our, our running conversation of, of the last month of, of consolidation of powers, right? Like this is two distribution companies. Um, uh, for those of you in California who don't know who RNDC is, um, uh, they used to be Young's Market Company, or they, they recently merged with Young's Market Company here in California. So those big red boxy old fashioned trucks that drive around with uh, with uh, liquor advertisements on the side, that's that company now. Um, and LibDib is a technology company that is a distribution company um, where you essentially, it's like the Amazon of booze you go, except, you know, not nearly as efficient or I guess as cool. Um, you go onto their website, you order what you want, and then uh, sometimes they have it in warehouse, or sometimes when you order it, it has to go to the supplier, uh, the distiller, and the distiller then has to put that on a truck and get it to the warehouse, whereas the warehouse then has to turn around and get it to you. So uh, it could take anywhere from a day to uh, in the longest period of time that it, it's taken me is like two months for me to get product. At which point in time, I didn't even remember that I had ordered it. And then it showed up and I was very excited. And uh, everybody talked shit about uh, to me about the product. And they continue to do so. And it's fine. It's a great conversation piece. Uh, that's right, Drew. It is the Scrapple Vodka. That's such a bad idea. No, it's, it's delicious. Such... But, you know, it's if you're from the South, you know what's up. It's it was okay. a very polarizing vodka. In the shop, it is. Just you know, it is. I wasn't usually. Yeah. I'm. I'm fine being the black sheep, but I was not. There was a crew of us who were like, "You're crazy. This is gross." And and I've had people come in and be like, "Oh shit, Scrapple vodka. Does it actually taste like Scrapple? That's really neat. Cool. I want some." 
Just and, as a reminder, can you can you tell or see, Alice, do you know what Scrapple is? Isn't it basically like scrambled eggs with literally everything thrown in there? You would think that. It's not. Chris, can you please can you please um I mean she's not please, wrong. She's not wrong. It's not like uh I say everything. I mean everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So scrapple scrapple is the everything and then you add that to the eggs. So scrapple is like ham hock. It's it's like it's fruits, it's nuts, it's herbs, it's like all the all the parts of pig that you don't necessarily like that aren't pretty that get like chopped up and you're not like full on making a sausage out of it, but you make this like breakfast scramble out of it. So yeah, it's that, which is in your vodka. It's great. It's delicious. Yeah. (laughs) But it's a very like culturally relevant thing, you know, uh, it's just just not here in California. Do people use it in like a bloody Mary? That's like, I mean, that's that's exactly how I would use it. I mean, so I ordered it from, I ordered it from LibDiv. It came from, it came from, a uh, a distillery out in let's say South Carolina, um, something uh, the Painted Stave I believe is the name of the is the distillery, um, and so it's a Southern distillery. It's something uh, um, you know something that totally fits with the culture. So uh, I don't know why they made it, but as soon as I saw like the label and what it was, I was like, yeah, sign me up. I'm down. The label is good. I'll give you the label. Outside of that, no. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Eilis, uh so similar similar to me, like you work for uh, a very small distributor. And then also you have this really incredible knowledge of just distribution in general. Um, you know, we kind of introduced you to the concept of LibDib uh tonight and you know there's still and i think we did a pretty piss poor job of it now that i think back on it but um but when but when you look at at this stuff i mean especially working from you know with so many small families uh brands and, and things like that i mean what are some of the the difficulties that you see that, that maybe the libdiv does make sense of them partnering with a huge distribution arm like what what do you see as the the upsides um well, first off, I just shake my head because I'm like, come on, guys. Do you really need to, like, add tech to this industry that has been doing just fine for so long? Um, well, just fine is relative. <laughs> um, but I think also when you think about, okay, yes, good, positive things for getting broader distribution for smaller producers who can't find a distributor. However, you still need to have an importer if you're coming from Europe. Mm. You still have to get your wine here. Um, so that's that's a step that they haven't yet taken care of. And I think you guys, you were talking about this a couple of weeks ago on the podcast, um, just about like that big company versus little company. In so many ways you are competitors and in so many ways you just are not because like um like you said they market themselves as being no sales reps and you can just order online and it's easy and some people like that but also how are all these small producers going to get that get their names out there without someone telling their story so it makes me think that it would be um it's more beneficial for specifically spirits 
um, domestic spirits um, rather than wines necessarily. Um, but yeah, like how, how are you going to really, and, and it, I think that ultimately it's going to narrow the scope of what people are buying. Like who are the retailers that are using this predominantly? Um, and what are like, what are they searching for and how is that going to narrow their field? I'm not sure if that made any sense at all. No, it did. It absolutely did. I think there's, um, you know, that it still presents a lot of the same problems that these smaller brands have. It's like, yes, the distribution channel has increased. So there's more routes being ran, you know, with, with like the, the Libdid products on the trucks because RNDC does have huge brands that are being delivered every single day. But does that necessarily make the biggest difference for a smaller brand if they don't have any of the actual sales force or people behind it that are really pushing it? You know, it's like, it's like, hey, and some of the brands that I worked with in the past, like, you know, hey, that took three weeks to get out to an account before. Maybe it takes two weeks now or a week. You're like, okay, great. I guess that's a little bit of yeah. an improvement. Or maybe it's our, maybe, maybe there's like minimums that need to be warehoused somewhere. Maybe they have PARs now, you know? Well, and that was one of the questions that I did ask, you know, uh, my friend who, who is with LibDib, but I was like, you know, so does that mean that you get to warehouse there now? And he's like, I don't know. He's like, it's there, you know, RNDC is this huge corporate giant, right? So more than likely what's going to end up happening is like, if he does warehouse with them, he's going to have to pay fees just like he would in the other situation, you know? So he's like, so I pay the fees to warehouse with you, but then I don't get any of your sales force, you know, like where's, where's the upside now on the, on, on the flip side, you know, if you're, if you're lived in, you're like, you're like, oh, we have this distribution channels and, and stuff like that now. And it's like, we're, we're that much more powerful. And you're like, are you like, is that really what you're saying? Cause I don't, I don't see how this has gotten that much well, better. So LibDib, LibDib, LibDib was primarily operating out of like what, California, uh, Hawaii. Like I, I, what, I'm not sure of what their, what their original footprint was, but now they've moved into like, half of half of the continental u.s so that that's significant yeah i mean that that's a big deal right so so now in this virtual world you can you can uh do educations on you know fucking youtube or i don't know how to do it because i'm terrible at marketing but uh, if you were good at it let's say you you get out there and you do something that's successful. Now you have you have more of a reach. You can like add a link where people can go and buy it. I mean, again, I think I think it's hugely beneficial for LibDip. I think they're the ones that really benefit out of this because now what you're doing is before you would send an order through LibDip, they would take that order, they would let the supplier know, like, hey, we just got an order for your stuff. Send us the stuff. They would send it to the LibDib headquarters, and then LibDib would then hire a third-party delivery service to then take that to the actual account. That was that was the point of LibDib. And Chris, as you just pointed out, they've expanded significantly, right? So now they're in all these different states, which means they're dealing with all these different third parties in every different state. Well, now if they just if they combine their efforts with RNDC, they do the same thing, get the order, 
reach out to the supplier. Hey, we just got an order for your stuff. Great. Cool. Now it goes to RNDC and goes to their delivery drivers, right? So they're not worried about contracting with different delivery companies all over the U.S. They're working with one company in all those different states that RNDC exists in with them simultaneously. So maybe it does make them a little bit more efficient. Maybe they have some better rates. But overall, does it really help the smaller brands? Like, not necessarily because they still don't have, you know, feet on the ground hitting the pavement and telling people about these different brands that are in their portfolio. But it might get out to them a little bit easier, you know, and with their RNDC order. So I think that's where I see the it really benefits lived in, but not necessarily the smaller brands like they're making it out to be. Yeah, I wonder, I'm very curious to see how it plays out, um, not just with the smaller brands and, you know, how much are those R&DC reps going to maybe even talk it up. Um, and I foresee that R&DC gets a huge leverage in the online footprint and they're going to see some uptick in business because it's just easier to order online than to have to deal with a person who's may or may not answer their phone in time for cutoff. Yeah, and that and that could be that could be kind of like a, a some testing that RNDC is doing, right? It's like how do we take this system that they've been working on for years and years and just incorporate it into ours? So it's kind of like you know you're beta testing this thing that you might have some interest in down the line because you know most of these companies what they're doing is they're trying to get leaner, right? They're trying to get to a point where it's like okay we don't have to have sales reps going to every single store, but we want to be selling to every single store. Right. So you save on your overhead. If you said, like, yeah, go to your website, fill out your order form. There you go. That's how you're going to order from now on. More and more of those bigger companies are moving towards online ordering. So it could be kind of like a like we're going to test the waters with this company who's been doing it this way the entire time and see how it works out with us. You know, that's probably. Yeah, I feel like yeah, that's a, um, that's a really pandemic good. Definitely. Go ahead, Iris. Uh, I was I was just going to take what you said um, because I feel like in the last year I've noticed that bigger companies are trimming off the fat and they you know you know what the small companies did they did their very best to keep all of their employees employed throughout all of 2020 as best as they could you know what the larger companies did they furloughed they laid off people they restructured. And I think that's what they've learned coming out of it. And I'm, I'm sure we'll see a lot more changes coming up in the fact that they just want to, they, they found that they can operate in a different way. And I think that's where they're going to be going towards. Yeah. I, you know, uh, going back to my original statement of confusion, I think one of the things that, that really struck me as um, odd to me is like, why would RDC do this? Like I, I just I couldn't I couldn't think of any benefit that that they that they got out of it. Like perhaps there's you know maybe they're getting like money for the shipping, right? So so they so uh, LibDib is paying them for shipping, you know. But I think really what Drew touched on with like doing some beta testing with this really strikes home because what comes to mind um, that we've sort of been beating around the bush is the Southern Glaciers. Uh, proof website that they, that they launched, I want to say about a year ago, um, that is full of holes. It is incredibly obnoxious as a user to use. Um, I hate doing it and I, 
attempt to never use it as much as possible, except like check this. I don't know the status of my bill or something like that. Uh, I, I loathe using it, but if they, if RNDC is attempting to like beta test and get at least their, their feet in the door with like developing some sort of partnership uh, with an ordering system that is quote unquote proven, you know, maybe, maybe that is their, their long-term plan. Well, I am a genius. So that's wow. You know, who's not dope drew, (laughs) you know, who's dope them over there. Oh, now it's time for my favorite part of the show where we give you dope people to follow. It could be Instagram accounts, Facebook profiles, blogs, other podcasts, hopefully not too many other ones while you still listen to ours, books, YouTube videos. What else? What else could we recommend to people they should check out? I don't know. All photographs. Kinds of photographs. Check out photographs. Uh, um, Eilis, who is your dope follow this week? I ha- I couldn't choose, so I have two. Nice. Um, the first one is a podcast that they haven't sent something in a while, as um, but I highly recommend going back and listening to every single one of their uh, episodes. It's called Grown Ups Read Things They Wrote as Kids. And... <laughs> It started as it's, it's based in Canada. It started out as a couple of a group of friends that got together and were reading their kid writing. And it's just one of these things that like it's hilarious, it's awkward, it's and at some points just like really sad and just heart wrenching. Um, so it kind of hits all of the bars, but it's definitely a good car re- car listen as well. Be- um, before you do your, before you do your second one, do either of you have? anything from your youth that you could potentially be on that show yeah so because so do Absolutely. i okay so okay Ilis, what is what is your that's thing that's why it's what is your thing that's why it's so interesting what would you be reading on that show if you were a guest i would probably read some of my very emo poetry love it okay all right yeah, chris, chris what, what, what would you read <laughs> fucking same oh my <laughs> it's God. exactly it i have i have so much of it <laughs> and i to be fair like still, I like, didn't like save if it. you guys both have and you guys both have access to this to this material yeah yeah i didn't save it my mom saved it and uh and it's just like uh there's a point in time where i was writing fervently uh, i mean and for like damn near a decade and my mom made me send her all my books just so i wouldn't throw them out and Ugh. then she copied all of them which is horrific to think about and like <laughs> either like transcribed it or like put it it put them all into a ton of like a binder and it's sitting in my closet right now. It's like it's probably within arm's reach if I really wanted to. That is incredibly embarrassing. Hopefully, oh, one hundred. Uh, it's just not the same situation for you. They're just like random books somewhere, right? At the bottom. They of the are box. all at my mother's house, um, and I do remember a certain period of time where I just was throwing away old journals, and then she kept them from the trash. <laughs> 
So some were kept against my will, but clearly not <laughs> as uh, documented as Chris there. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, so that's why I love them. It just, it brings up so much and everyone, you know, has something to, it it brings up a lot and everyone would have something to share. Totally. All right. Uh, What's your number two? My number two is uh, Instagram, Stephanie Danch Photography. Um, She did our engagement photos. She's a very sweet woman. She does just really true photography um really captures relationships in a very natural way i highly recommend uh checking her out she is at s danch photography on instagram and uh if you happen to want some family or children put put photos taken highly recommend her she's not related to another danch that we know is she she is his wife Hey, look yeah. at that. That's right. That's cool. Nice. <laughs> Come full circle. Yeah. Those are, those are good. Okay. Chris, who's your don't follow this week? Uh, mine is on Instagram. It's stuff that looks like stuff. Oh my God. Stuff that looks like stuff. It's great. It makes me so happy. It's just an entire Instagram of, like messed up video, like messed up uh, photos that take you two or three seconds to like adjust your view. Every single picture just makes you go, wait, what, what is happening? Like, why, why is this going on? It's pretty great. Uh, One of my favorite ones is of a child sitting on their father's lap. And it looks like the father's hand is a tiny baby hand. And that the child's hand is a ginormous hand. That's like twice the size of him. Yes, it's okay. one of my recent favorites. Those are great. Yes, I agree. It's a good one. What about you? Um, so I was telling you guys earlier, I I usually struggle to really find the good ones and stuff like that, and I did not on this. And it's because as soon as I opened up my Instagram today, the first thing that popped up was AEW Wrestling. And I just have to tell you oh. that right now, it is such a good fucking time to be watching wrestling. It is so entertaining. It is so good. It's so much fun. It, it doesn't matter how old you are or if you're into it or not. It's just, it's, it's at a point right now where the people involved are so great. And they did a pay-per-view last night. That was one of the best three hours I've ever spent in my life. Like it was just amazing. And, to quote the great John Oliver, wrestling is better than the things you like. And so you need to jump <laughs> yeah. on the professional wrestling <laughs> bandwagon <laughs> and you need to check it out because now it's just, it's, it's so much fun. And, and I do want to say like, because so much shit is fucked up right now, whether it's just the politics, the COVID, the fires, whatever, being able to escape into this dramatic world that is also like physically impressive is just a goddamn treat right now. And I think everybody needs to do themselves some favor and watch some fucking professional wrestling, specifically AEW. So check it out and you'll be like, Drew, this is really stupid. And then you're going to like watch like 45 minutes and you'll be like, okay, 
I'm in. And then you're going to start texting me questions and I will get you up to speed. But professional wrestling, everybody go do it. You owe it to yourself. You owe it to your psyche. Stop doom posting and doom scrolling and watch some fucking wrestling. I feel attacked. You should feel attacked. Yeah, let's set that one over. Hey, there we go. Keep it nice and low so you can hear us. See. All right, we're going to adjust the volume and start it again. Yeah. All of this stays in. All of this stays in. It all stays in. Why would we ever cut anything out? Editing is for chumps. The music from the Good Bottle Podcast is orchestrated by the Moore Brothers and produced very awkwardly by these two guys. But you know that by now. And before we go kill these bottles that we've been drinking, we ask that if you've enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Please. Pretty please. You can also follow us on Instagram or on Facebook at the Good Bottle Podcast or on our personal accounts. Mine is dgarrison6. Chris is Chris Sinclair. Eyeless, where can they follow you on the social medias? Find me at Eyeless RM. That's A I L I S R M on Instagram. What about your sweet uh, gig that you do for a living? Where can they find them? Oh, you know, if you want to check out some earrings and, you know, accessories and such, uh, that is at The White Goose. All right. And you can also support the podcast um, by visiting our Etsy shop. Get yourself one of, the, one of those dope new. Uh, uh, fanny packs with a special message inside that you only get to read if you buy the fanny pack. Uh, you can also check out anchor.fm slash goodbottlepodcast and support us that way. Just like our good friend Seth does. Yeah. Thanks, Seth. <laughs> if you would like for us to cover a story or if you're working with a brand that wants to be featured, please email us at thegoodbottlepodcast at gmail.com. And as a reminder, you can purchase the bottles that we drank on this episode at thegoodbottleshop.com. And until next time, cheers. Cheers. We did it. Another one in the bank. Huzzah. <laughs>